From lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today, Alex Jerry. Alex, will you be joining us tomorrow during This Is Hell office hours every Friday at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, starting at 7 p.m.? Uh, yeah, if I can break my streak of waking up before 4 a.m. every day. Is your wife getting back so you don't have to take care of your kid tomorrow? Uh, well, she's back, and i uh, still got to take care of my kid. Yeah, uh, I got to deal with that problem. Wait, well, you shouldn't, I, I shouldn't refer to him as a problem in case anything actually happens. <laughs> uh, just one thing, actually. Maybe, Chuck, you can weigh on this. And I don't want to hear from any centrists on this issue <laughs> as a marital dispute I'm having. What is more normal to wash your hands 35 times a day or to wash your hands maybe four times a day? <laughs> I'd say four to five times a day, yes. Every time after you touch anything that's disgusting, you should wash your hands. Yes. Four to five. Seems good. <laughs> Join us every Friday night beginning at our new time starting at 7 p.m. and going till at least 10, probably 11, maybe midnight. That's This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 uh, West Devon here in Chicago's little India neighborhood. The bar downstairs from these here studios. If you're interested in volunteering, drop by and we'll show you our interview booth and control room. And if you are a community group club or organization that is seeking a neutral meeting space to use for your get-togethers, drop by. We'll show you the large art gallery space that is available upstairs and is the home of the Second Story Studios, which is also up here on the second floor with us. Today on This Is Hell, throughout the history of capitalism, business and corporations have tried to figure out exactly how to dominate the market. And with the new platform model of business, they may have figured out not only how to dominate the market, but actually become the market itself. The new intelligent corporation and the intelligence economy seeks to do what all capitalism has tried to do before, eliminate the need for human labor. But with new technology, they may actually be able to get away with it this time. Imagine a world where you enter a bar with no bartender, go out to eat with no waiter or waitress to interact with, libraries, bookstores, music stores, art galleries with not a human to be found, only a place to swipe your card or whatever we will be swiping in the future, left to our own devices, our own devices, using our personal data, and employing an algorithm determines everything for us. The new intelligent corporation, places like Amazon, Uber, Lyft, that impose their platform on communities without any concern for how it impacts those who live there. The process ravages our ability to associate together and cooperate, which are needed as a survival response to evolutionary pressures. As our guest will argue, it takes the ideological project of neoliberalism all the way to the expropriation of the political, leaving us without any agency to free ourselves from the coming quantum supremacy 
these corporations hope to attain. This is a deep algorithmic takeover of our personal feelings, tastes, and opinions, which to me sounds like a threat to what it is to be human. We'll try to figure out how much of a threat the intelligence economy and its platform model are to all of us when we speak in a few minutes with Nandini Chami, co-author of the Roar magazine article, Data Governance and the New Frontiers of Resistance. The 21st Century Corporation is using algorithmic-based intelligence to accumulate data on a massive scale. Social movements need to grasp this quickly. Nandini wrote this story with Anita Gurumurthy, a founding member and executive director of the Bengaluru India-based IT for Change, which you can find at itforchange.net. Nandini is deputy director at IT for Change. She is engaged in policy research and advocacy at the intersections of digital policy, development, justice, and gender equality. You can follow IT for Change on Twitter at IT for Change. We'll have more. Uh, we'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll be announcing our favorite this week's prize for having our favorite answer to this week's question from hell is a This Is Hell trucker cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com when you click on support. And of course, we'll wrap up the week we do the way we do most weeks with moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeffy defends the obvious. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I'm pretty excited about uh, getting a new board tomorrow. Anything uh, about you, Alex? You pretty excited about this? Uh, if it works. I hope it works. I hope we can actually put it yeah, in. Yeah, uh, just so you know, everyone, we're, we've are we been operating on a board that was very generously donated to us that is like a, a soundboard for like playing instruments and things and not for radio. And uh, in the middle of the night one night, and it got an email from Theron who found a radio board extremely cheap uh, that looks good. So we're going to be setting that up uh, hopefully next week. And, and it's, uh, it, it should deal with a lot of the noise that we hear. It'll also be a lot easier to train new board operators and producers on it because it's just a radio, radio board. It's not a mixing board. This week's question from Mel is, how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Mel at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Email it to Alex or I at alex at thisishell.com or chuck, chuck at thisishell.com. Person with our favorite answer gets the This Is Hell trucker cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Oh, uh, yeah, we got a bunch. Uh, Aaron D. says, I'm using social media to point out all the good things bad people have done, just like Bernie. Did you know that Nixon started the EPA and got us out of Vietnam? <laughs> Sheldon B. says, by being an active citizen. Not too clever, probably already mentioned. John T. says, by posting on the U.S. elections page until Facebook gives me a medal. Right, let me just hit... Report. Because <laughs> it's M-E-D-D-L-E. That got you so mad. I knew it would. Alan G says, just effing around to see what happens. I love that That's one. Very good. That's really good. Braden S says, reminding campaign managers that they need to change their password. Just click here. Nathaniel T, hopefully he's at the bar on Friday, says, obviously supporting a marginalized working class political machine out of, of the kind that dominated 75% of American political history, but is now completely un-American. Justin M says, outspending all candidates in the only currency that matters. Sweet, sweet love. <laughs> and finally, 
how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? Jeff C. says, telling people in USA to write for Sanders while I live in Australia. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from Mel after today's guest, and we will reveal our favorite following Jeff and announce who gets a This Is Hell trucker cap. <laughs> to get you caught up, earlier this week, we got an email from Kit who wrote to tell us about Matthew Eagleton Price giving a talk on the political economy of managerialism from the factory floor to the university as a teach-out, not a teach-in, a teach-out organized as part of the currently ongoing UCU, that's the University and College Union strike, at SOAS, that's the School of Oriental and African Studies, at <clears throat> University of London. What little I knew was that the British government ended subsidies for specialist language institutions like SOAS, so the school is now mostly dependent on tuition fees. This means either tuition will rise dramatically, programs will be cut off, or the university will figure out how to turn a profit, and then these are none of the things that the students want. But there has to be more to the story, so we emailed Kit to find out more. Kit replied, unfortunately, I don't know much either. I was just passing through the campus, but this might help. Kit then sent a link to a story at the UCU website that reads 74 UK universities will be hit with 14 days of strike action in February and March. So this is happening right now. The action will start on uh, Thursday, February 20th. So that was just last week and escalate each week, culminating with a week long walkout from Monday. March 9th to Monday or Friday, March 13th. The dispute center on the sustainability of the university's superannuation scheme and rising costs for members and on universities' failure to make significant improvements on pay, quality, casualization, and workloads. UCU General Secretary Joe Grady said, we have seen more members back strikes since the winter walkouts and the next wave of action will affect even more universities and students. If universities want to avoid further disruption, they need to deal with rising pension costs and address the problems over pay and conditions. So government cuts mean Money has to be raised some other way, and that means either higher tuition or fewer programs or worse pay and benefits for teacher, teachers or, or work uh, for less pay or turning full-time employees into part-time uh, employees or retirement funds that are more expensive, not to mention the ongoing demand for equality. The talk that Kit wrote us about, Matthew Eagleton Price's On the political economy of managerialism from the factory floor to the university was part of the very, very, very organized teach-outs that are happening around the strike. And you can find out more about that strike and all of those teach-outs by going to ucusoas.wixsite.com slash strike 20. So if you want to know more about the weeks of strikes that the uh, UK and the Britain is in the midst of right now, all you have to do is just go to that website. Again, just go to ucusoas.wixsite.com slash strike 2020. And now we all know. Coming up, the intelligence economy has spawned the intelligent corporation whose platform business model is about to achieve quantum supremacy over the market. In other words, it's not about to dominate the market, but become the market itself. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from Hal. We'll name our favorite and the winner of a This Is Hell trucker cap. We'll share what we're doing on Patreon this week, which Alex will be figuring out during our guest this morning. There will be a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeffy defends the obvious and Alex 
Alex will tell us what's happening on next week's shows. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. Here in late capitalism, a new business model has emerged. You've seen it. You've interacted with it. You've likely given it your business. The problem is this new business model is about to achieve such dominance over the market that it is about to become the market. So what does it mean for our future here on planet Earth when the intelligence economy and its intelligent corporations take over? Here to help us find out is Nandini Chami. She is co-author of the Roar magazine article, Data Governance and the New Frontiers of Resistance. The 21st Century Corporation is using algorithmic-based intelligence to accumulate data on a massive scale. Social movements need to grasp this change quickly. Nandini wrote the story with Anita Gurumurthy, a founding member and executive director of the Bengaluru India-based IT for Change, which you can find at itforchange.net. Welcome to This Is Hell, Nandini. Hi. Hi. It's great to have you on our show. You write that four centuries after the East India Company set the trend for corporate resource extraction, most of the world is now in the grip of unbridled corporate power. But corporate power is on the cusp of achieving quantum supremacy. And social movements in the digital age need to understand this in order to shift gears in their struggles. What do you mean by quantum supremacy? How is that kind of domination different from the kind of domination we've experienced in the past from business? When we talk about uh, quantum supremacy, I think what we are referring to is that the world is more unequal than ever before. These days, we are hearing a lot about, you know, fears of tech clash and the risk of a consumer and regulatory revolt against big big tech firms. But even The Economist, a very neoliberal magazine, recognizes that big tech power is like unbridled and market capitalization of the top five U.S. tech firms have increased by 52% just in the past 12 months, and that amount of increase is roughly equivalent to Germany's entire stock market. And we see that the increase in capital is coming at a disproportionate reduction of labor income, so workers are getting inserated, and the tech capitalists are gaining the bulk of the gains in the economy. And this is the quantum supremacy we are talking about. And what is scary is that this gains to big tech is coming at the cost of people and planet because you have corporate power that is threatening to take over the world, take over the state-citizen relationship, decimate labor completely, and even replace the old institutions of traditional capitalism, like you put it, they are no longer just players in the marketplace. Amazon, for instance, is replacing the market itself. And what are the distortions that we are seeing? This is what this is the cut that we are at. You write that the platform model emerged as a business proposition in the early 2000s when Internet companies offering digital communication services began extracting user data from networked social interactions to generate valuable information for targeted advertising. How aware was the general public that this was taking place? After all, when it was reported that Facebook was sharing user data, the New York Times was reporting that we all understood this, that surrendering of this information in order to use 
use Facebook was some kind of unwritten social agreement, social contract that we had all had with Mark Zuckerberg. So to what degree did we actually know this was taking place, that the emergence of platform economy, the platform model was emerging? I think what happened in the early days of the internet was that, as the free software movement advocates put it, we, mis we mistook the free as in free beer for free as in actual freedom or libra, to use a term from another language. So what happened was that all these online communication services such as Facebook or social media engines or even Google Gmail and everything, we started using this for the freebies that we got and we never thought what it meant to surrender our data because we might have given consent, but the consent was never meaningful because we did not expect the behavioral data mining and profiling that these platforms would do. And we also did not anticipate that these platforms would enter into other sectors in the real economy. For example, you can see that even in traditional sectors, firms such as erstwhile Monsanto, which has subsequently been acquired by Bayer, they decided that they have to position themselves as a data company, and they are no longer just an agriculture company. So this type of transformation where data and the digital intelligence mind from data will enable the control of entire value chains, we didn't see this coming in the early 2000s. I think that's what happened. So you write that control over a data-based intelligence gives platform owners a unique vantage point, the power to shape the nature of interactions among member nodes, practices such as Amazon segmenting and hyper-targeting of consumers through price manipulation, Uber's panoptic disciplining of its partner drivers, and TripAdvisor's popularity ranking algorithm of listed properties, restaurants, and hotels are all examples of how such platforms mediate economic transactions. The accumulation of data that feeds algorithmic optimization enables more intensified data extraction in a self-propelling cycle that culminates in the platform's totalizing control of entire economic ecosystems. But, and remember, I'm, I'm kind of being sarcastic here, here but, but that's good, right? That's efficiency, isn't it? Doesn't this mean we will be able to get better and less expensive products more quickly than ever before? Isn't this the final step of the market finally becoming free by being in total control of itself and therefore being totally efficient and without any outside interference. Isn't this a good thing for consumers? I think it uh, depends upon, you know, who it is efficient for. If by efficiency we mean that capital attains final freedom from labor, it escapes all checks and balances, and it can eliminate and iron out all those needless social obligations and attain complete domination, then of course it's perfect efficiency. But what happens to the livelihoods of all those who are reduced to jumping from one gig to another and they no longer have any stable employment? And what happens to the huge environmental costs of these platform models. Like we have mentioned in our paper, we can actually see that an Elsevier study published in 2018 in the science journal Resources Conservation and Recycling, it actually showed how the years between 2015 and 17, when door-to-door -door fast food delivery linked to food delivery platforms accounted for an eight-fold jump, that was also the time when packaging waste and, uh, and environmental pollution increased exponentially. 
And also, if you look at the climate change footprint of the intelligence economy, network data devices are expected to be consuming about one-fifth of global electricity by 2030 just to keep going. So who it is efficient for and who is getting expelled from this efficiency and from the economy and from the world itself? These are hard questions we should be asking ourselves. Is its impact on climate change, is the intelligence economy's impact on climate change, is that avoidable? Can we have a green intelligence economy, a green platform model of business, and green intelligent corporations? I think that for the intelligence economy to be truly green, we must move beyond the current trends in greenwashing where Google and Amazon like issue all the advertisements about using big data technologies to keep their servers more efficient, etc., but at the same time invest and get into deals with oil companies. This is not like, you know, the green economy we need. What we need is an economy where intelligence and data power can work for small, cooperative, sustainable models, can be built alternative platforms from below which are embedded in local economies. Can we think of an alternative to Uber where the algorithm works in the driver's favor? And it's not about just like, you know, driving the price down and sending drivers on rides that they don't want to take, but which works in the interest of all the members and prioritizes members, let's say, who may not have had a ride since the morning, though they were waiting on the app. What are the values that we will encode into algorithms? What is the ethical basis? Unless we change this, and also unless we change capital ownership, which is a long-standing problem, and even Rosa Luxemburg has talked about it, right? That the old problem of workers' ownership over the means of production, and when workers control such enterprises, how can they control them in ways without turning into mini versions of like capitalist exploitative enterprises? So these are some of the questions that we need to answer. We are speaking with Nandini Chami. She is co-author of the Roar magazine article, Data Governance, and the New Frontiers of Resistance. Nandini wrote the story with Anita Gurumurti, a founding member and executive director at the Bengaluru, India-based IT for Change, which you can find at itforchange.net. Nandini, Nandini sorry, is deputy director at IT for Change, and you can follow IT for Change on Twitter, at IT for Change. You write Amazon is no no longer an online bookstore and was perhaps never intended to be. With intimate knowledge about how the market works, Amazon is a market leader in anticipatory logistics and business analytics, providing both fulfillment and on-demand cloud-based computing services to third parties. Do you think that was always the point, that Amazon was never about only selling books? Were the books merely the way in which they could collect consumer information and become a leader in logistics? In analytics, was it a kind of bait and switch offering the consumer one thing, but that what they were actually getting in return was something quite different than they what than what they had been promised? Yeah, I would like to answer this question by telling you a very small story. So as everyone of us knows, Amazon did start off as a bookstore, but for a number of years, for almost 15, 20 years, Amazon was completely making losses, right? And many people thought that, you know, is this a charity or is it worthwhile investing in this company? So at that point of time, Jeff Bezos 
he wrote a note to the stakeholders where he said that they had to be patient because Amazon's game was the long haul and Amazon aimed to be what electricity is to the world of manufacturing. Amazon wanted to be that retail utility infrastructure to the world of commerce. And this memo, when we read this like about like 10 years later, we are pretty sure that internally in the company, this was the game all along to become the essential infrastructure for commerce as we know it and replace like the market. That is just amazing. You write that in this new strategy for acquiring market power, long-term market monopolization is privileged of the ability to break even in the short run. The ecosystem that a platform seeks to capture has room only for one winner with the wherewithal to forego immediate profits and invest in business integration through aggressive acquisition and systematic data layer development. Other competitors are destined to fall by the wayside. So keep losing money while investing in the future through business integration and acquisition and data development. Exactly Exactly what Amazon did. Does that guarantee success? Was Amazon's massive success inevitable? I think this is a great question because what we are seeing after the whole soft bank fiasco of a couple of months ago is that it is very hard to predict what kind of platform models will work in the long term and what will not and what will just crash and burn. We have seen that with the Uber IPO, and we have seen that with BeWorks IPO as well. I think it's very hard to say this, because just like there used to be a financial bubble, and critiques of capitalism have always pointed out to financial bubble, you now see a data bubble where data accumulation for its, its own sake has become the new logic of capitalism, right? And many people build models for accumulating data without like really having a use case or a final plan in mind. And sometimes one gets it and sometimes one does it. So especially in terms of asset light models, which look at building platforms for connecting services, I think it's a gamble and it's really hard to know who will like finally survive and who will not. But one thing is crystal clear, that in the platform model as we know it, in every market niche, there can only be a winner-take-all model. I remember friends of mine in business telling me way back in the late 90s that investing in Amazon, if you could wait it out, was a sure thing, that there was a sense that its eventual inevitable success was guaranteed. Of course, none of my friends wanted to wait that long, but they all seemed to believe Amazon could not fail because of their business strategy focusing on the long term. Was Amazon's massive success inevitable? And the reason that I'm asking is if the less we are learning is focusing on the long term. How antithetical is that to capitalism, which focuses mostly on how to make money quickly, not over any long haul? Could the platform model change capitalism's focus from the short term to the long term? I think that, you know, there are two ways to look at it. One way to look at it is also the way that you have put it, and what people say is that capitalism as we know it is itself in crisis because you are no longer letting the market mechanism work freely and you are distorting the essential structures. And when you look for like the long haul, uh, you're not like actually playing by the profit logic or letting the market mechanism do its work. Uh, here, as a feminist, I would like to turn the question on its head and say, What's happening in the platform model is that 
capitalism has reached a stage where the rest of the world is in a final crisis and it's do or die for everyone, especially for those of us in the global south. That is a very scary situation of it being do or die, because you write that in the capitalist economy, the key contradiction has always been between capital and labor. Capital is in a perennial quest for freedom from labor through labor substituting technological advances in territories to shift production to reduce labor costs in the intelligence economy. Capital seems to have come very close to realizing its primordial pursuit. So is capital then, has it always been, in competition with humanity and capital is about to win, which means defeating us? I think that, uh, you know, always we know that revolutions come from like these very, very difficult moments of contradiction. And one such contradiction is staring us in, the space, in, in our face that not only is labor being totally imitated, you also see that international political economy is showing us that countries in the global south are in a very, very pernicious uh, situation where they are in no position to move up the data value chain, where if you look at the recent digital economy report produced by the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, the two economies of U.S. and China, they account for 75% of all patents related to blockchain technologies, 50% of global spending on IoT, 75% of the cloud computing market, and most importantly, 90% of the market capitalization value of the world's 70 largest digital platform companies. And we know that as all value chains data in the real economy, and over 30% of real economy value chains will get platformized in the next five years is the prediction that we are hearing. What will this mean for countries in the global south who will be, let's say, deindustrialized? or reduced to the bottom of the data value chain, and what will it mean for their right to development? And what we see in a heartening way are the struggles in the spaces of trade policy and trade justice where countries and civil societies from the South and their allies from the North are trying to fight those rules that will kind of permanently perpetuate this very unequal digital economy. So that is one ray of hope. And also within countries, you can actually see conversations from the cooperative movement and from people who are talking platform cooperativism in Europe. There are some alternative models being explored, and we have to see how this goes, and we have to put our weight behind that. Why does the platform model, why does the intelligent intelligence economy and how does it incentivize monopolization? Why does it lead to monopolization? How does it incentivize monopolization? And can we take that incentive out of the platform model? Yeah, I think that the platform model uh, incentivizes monopolization in three ways. Firstly, if we look at its design itself, there is network data power which means that network effects of scale and the economies of scale accrue as a user network builds. And the more connections it has and the more connections that a centralized node can control, the more efficient a platform becomes. And why is that? This is because from the connections, as you mine more and more data, the digital intelligence that is mined through algorithms becomes uh, more nuanced and more sophisticated. 
And so there is a particular centralizing tendency that is inbuilt into the process of gathering algorithmic intelligence through a platform model. But the other part, which is adding to the concentration, is that right now, the data that is being mined and the intelligence that is generated is completely enclosed, and it is in the hands of a few powerful corporations. If we were to imagine a platform where centralization of intelligence does not mean the centralization of gains from that intelligence, the situation would be different. For example, if the owners of the platform were you know, organized as a workers' cooperative or something like that, and there would be a trust type of structure to manage the algorithmic intelligence, of course, there would be a centralized intelligence engine, but what it is used for and to what end, that would differ. Also, like there have been proposals from Europe, even today, knowing that we have walked down the path of platform monopolies, if there is a way to break the monopolies and kind of like put back the data into data trust and data commons and allow for new innovation to happen, just like how IBM was broken up in the 70s or the monopoly was challenged, and even going further back, how the oil barons were challenged in the U.S. itself, if we look at things like that, then it could be different. And in certain areas, we could even think of platforms being managed and being provided as public utility infrastructure. You write about how in platform-based capitalism, local business models based on intimate contextual knowledge are completely displaced by the data-based intermediation of the marketplace and social transactions. It is by eliminating these disparate pockets of capital accumulation that platform owners maximize their profits. Here in the United States, there is a lot of controversy over what has caused the problems that people have experienced in the Rust Belt. And a lot of people point to globalization. A lot of people point to free trade agreements. Does the platform strive to eliminate all small business, to consume everything and have algorithms determine our interactions with the world and all of our human interactions? Is the real threat to small town America, small businesses, the platform model, not anything else? Yeah. I think, you know, the evidence lies in the statistics. For example, uh, there is this uh, study by the nonprofit organization that is based in the U.S. called the Institute of Local Self-Reliance, which shows how the rise of Amazon has actually been accompanied by a decline of small business and small independent retail industry in the U.S., and it has led to the closure of what was popularly called mom-and-pop stores, right, like all over the country. So there is evidence in the statistics about that. And I would also like to say that I think we should qualify this and say this platform model that is owned and dominated by the intelligence corporation or big tech, that is really the problem. It might be possible to imagine a platform model differently where, let's say, if we have competition law checks where there is a separation of the platform market players layer, from the actual act of provisioning and selling goods and services on the platform, such as the proposals put forth by the American academic uh, Lena Khan in terms of reforming Amazon, or looking at what uh, regulators in the uh, EU are saying, and looking at uh, separating data value chains from the commerce value chains of a platform, 
things could be different and we also might be able to think of labor enhancing automation supported by data and ai technologies rather than labor substituting technologies if that is really the normative principle that we choose to stand by so what the platform does for us and how it affects us it's about the governance choices we make it's about the ethical debate right now one sad thing is that most conversations on platform data and ai ethics we narrow our conversations completely about privacy and informed consent and personal data protection i think it's also time to talk about digital justice and make that our demand about how do we redistribute the gains of this new technology fairly and reclaim that conversation workers have had ever since the dawn of capitalism at every moment there has been technological change Well, let's talk about those choices for a moment. You said that you, know, you write that the dynamic of data dispossession is self-propelling. It is now well understood that platforms aggressively pursue a strategy of locking in users, offering instant gratification in exchange for data and making it costly for them to leave a platform. Is the goal to make us dependent on a platform that our lives would be far more difficult without that platform and do we choose to be dependent on that platform? formed it was it our choice to be dependent on those platforms i think in terms of you know making choices as consumers it is certainly true that we have opted for convenience over our long term good as far as let's say certainly the internet platforms and social media platforms are concerned but i would also like to point out that there is a majority of people especially in the global south whose lives are being transformed by the process of platformization even though they themselves may have never even gone on the internet or interacted with any of these platforms to give you a specific example the e-commerce platform alibaba is entering into a range of agreements in many countries in the asia pacific to acquire farm lands and build an end to end integrated farm uh, food supply chain which will grow let's say different uh, products and also uh, tie up with dairy farms across the asia pacific to supply to the chinese market there have been concerns about how the free trade agreement that is being negotiated currently in the asia pacific will remove all forms of national regulation or powers of regulators in these countries to contain the excesses of alibaba when it enters into deals with farmers or the corporate land grab and what will it mean for many of let's say the women marginal farmers who run the bulk of family farms that uh, provide the food supply for most of these countries so what i want to caution is that for most of these women whose livelihoods are going to be decimated in this process as it unfolds they had no real choice ever and they are actually being expelled from the economy because of the forces of platformization You write that when participation in the platform on the platform owners terms becomes de facto the only choice for economic actors data extractivism is normalized in order for us to participate in today's economy do we have to give our our right to our privacy away for free is the new cost of being in the economy our privacy which is guaranteed in the bill of rights because that seems unconstitutional and like very much breaking the law I think that's what it comes to 
Uh, because uh, this also like another dangerous uh, move uh, where uh, we are also controlling the power of states to uphold the right to privacy and the fundamental freedoms of uh, uh, citizens. For instance, in a plurilateral e-commerce agreement that is currently being pushed in the WTO by the U.S. government and its allies, there is pressure on developing country regulators not to regulate any of the social media platforms or big tech companies operating there. And I also want to say that within the U.S., I think the conversation on regulating big tech has, has indeed come far after the Snowden revelations and after Cambridge Analytica. But I think there is still a long road to be traveled and a lot of ground to be covered because on, on the one hand, it cannot be just about upholding the rights of citizens within the U.S. It's also about ensuring that the U.S. government does not allow big tech to ride roughshod over the citizens of uh, developing countries. And this means that proposals in the EU about taxing digital services and big tech platforms, they should not be met with retaliatory action and they should not be shot down by the U.S. And it's a global conversation we need to have. It's about everyone's privacy at stake. And we need a new global data governance framework that is rooted in the foundational concept of international human rights. You write that through data extractivism, the intelligent corporation ravages sociality, taking the ideological project of neoliberalism all the way to the expropriation of the political. This is a deep takeover and ontological encroachment on human subjectivity. What do you mean by ravaging sociality and a deep takeover of human subjectivity? Because that sounds like the end of not only our relations with other human beings, but the end of having personal feelings, tastes and opinions, the end of what we might think of as what makes up us, the co-optation by the market of what people might consider a soul. What do you mean by ravaging sociality and a deep takeover of human subjectivity? Uh, what I mean is that in the new norms that platform sociality has enshrined, it has neoliberalized all our relations and the way we relate to each other. For example, the kind of politics we privilege has become a narrow politics of individual choice. We no longer pay attention to questions of structural discrimination. And for instance, you can see this in the way data and AI ethics debates get framed, and many of which uh, also see big tech participation, right? So it's often about ensuring that there is representational equality, but who is talking redistributional concerns and right to development concerns? You no longer have room for those type of values. And also in the short run, what we see is that when sociality itself is commodified, meaning my friendships, what I choose to like, what I choose to read, the politics I express, all becomes fodder for the attention economy, there is something very dangerous happening here. Because the only politics and the only expression that will be privileged is the politics and expression that serves the interests of the market, which will definitely nowhere be a truly radical politics. That is what we mean by that. Is the final goal of the intelligence economy, the intelligent corporation, the platform model of business, is the final goal to 
have what Amazon has tried to do with these cashless stores where you don't see any employees. You never really interact with anyone. There's You go to a bar and there's no bartender. You're just uh, interacting with your card swiping and your algorithm. You go to a restaurant and you don't see any waiters or waitresses. You go to a bookstore, you go to a record store, you don't see any other human beings. And it's your algorithm that is your interme- intermediary between the market and yourself. Is that the future that Amazon wants to have where we don't interact with other human beings anymore? I think that uh, the future will be one where we all interact with other human beings only with a market mentality and relate with a consumer ethics. I think that's what will happen. Because even in governance, one starts like scoring one's interactions, and there is no room for a value that is beyond and outside the market. And if it cannot be monetized, it will have no place in human life. So what happens to our rights? How do they change? How do they differ when we change from being citizens to being consumers? I think when we change from uh, being citizens to consumers, uh, we are all fated to end up in what the academic Virginia Eubanks termed the digital poorhouse, which is like managed by algorithms, if we don't perform by the rules of the market. So only deserving citizens get welfare, others do not get anything, and this holds for all facets of life. And you will be in public places where facial recognition systems determine whether you are a dissenter, whether you are a troublemaker, are you a law-abiding citizen, and you will have more and more gatekeeping by algorithms. And it will truly be a world, a surveillance society that Deleuze uh, imagined. Here in the United States, people are very concerned about other countries meddling in the U.S. elections, kind of hypocritically, seeing as how that's what the United States does all around the world on a regular basis. Within the platform model, within the intelligent corporation, the intelligence economy, is disinformation stoppable? Can you stop uh, disinformation within this model? Does the the platform model benefit from disinformation, disincentivizing uh, actual truth and actually uh, incentivizing disinformation? Uh, Yeah, sadly, the platform model does benefit from disinformation because it's been proven across the world that uh, shock news has value and viral uh, potential, right? And whatever goes viral and gets eyeballs, that feeds the attention economy. So there is a problem that is inbuilt into the design of social media platforms. And if we have to tackle disinformation, we have to answer two hard questions. The first is about tech design, where currently the tech design of social media platforms privileges virality over all other values, and this must change. And the second thing, at least in the U.S. context, is that the Communication Decency Act, that may need some rethinking, where this imagination of the intermediary as this absolutely neutral player who does not carry any publisher liability and is exempt from all regulation, I think that might need some rethink because what we are learning is that platforms can drive content and they can govern and decide what we see, what we like, and what content travels by how much. So we might need to think of new forms of media regulation where free speech is not suppressed, but we also know that the democratic fabric 
has to be preserved where there is room for all voices. So we may need to revisit that debate. We have been speaking with Nandini Chami. She is deputy director at IT for Change. Find IT for Change at itforchange.net. Follow IT for Change on Twitter at IT for Change. She is co-author of the Aurora Magazine article that we have been discussing today, Data Governance and the New Frontiers of Resistance. Uh, one last question for you, Nandini, and our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. Is it us or capital? Do we have to choose between us or capital? And what guarantee is there that we will not only be able to choose, that we will actually choose us? I think that we will have to choose us over the interests of uh, capital because there is no other way out. But sadly, there is no guarantee that things will turn out this way because the power to change is not in the hands of those who will benefit from choosing humanity over capital. And it is with the people who gain and who will stand to gain from preserving the status quo. But there is always hope because when you look at environmental change, when you look at the crisis of climate change that is looming large, when we look at ungovernable big tech, which is putting capitalism itself in crisis, as you said, and when you look at the global political economy where countries of the South do not like this order, you can see ferment everywhere. And we do not know in what places like change will come and how change will begin. And it will be very arrogant of this, I'm sure, to say that things will turn out this way. So I think the only thing we can carry with us is hope. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I cannot thank you enough. This is a fantastic article article at Roar Magazine. Uh, everybody should check it out. We have been speaking with Nandini Chami. She is deputy director of IT for Change. Find them at itforchange.net and on Twitter at itforchange. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks. <laughs> Putting people before profits since 1996. This is Hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who support This is Hell in a Moment, as well as the Moment of Truth, this weekend's Hangover Cure, and what's happening on the show next week. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell trucker cap, which you can see right now along with all of our other merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, uh, yeah. And you know what? Uh, fuck it. I'm going to come to the bar on Friday. I'll sleep when I'm dead, which is probably in a few years from now because I can't sleep. How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? Chris H. says, so capital isn't fungible? No. Jacob J. says, write in, vote for Beto. Si se puede. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Beto, that seems like three elections ago, doesn't it? <laughs> I know. I know. Remember when he was the front runner? <laughs> no. Uh, Raymond R. <laughs> says, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. A, B, select, start. Dan H. says, I'm scaring the squares away from the polls by dressing as Baphomet, breasts and all, and making fake child sacrifices to myself, as one does. 
John K says, praying to an atheist socialist god. John M says, I suggested to Pete's campaign that in order to better reach out to the Asian community, he used the year, current year's Chinese zodiac symbol as the banner for his Facebook page. <laughs> How are you meddling in the U.S. election? Angela M says, putting on various disguises and voting multiple times until I run out of wigs. <laughs> Thomas K says, elections? What elections? Joanne C says, I became a citizen so that I could vote for the best interest of Canada. <laughs> I like that one. Josh M says, being a Bernie bro. Claudia F says, I'm going to take money from Bloomberg and make Instagram videos of me shoving loaves of bread up my ass. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, do you have an OnlyFans site there, Claudia? <laughs> Warren L says, by evicting all my tenants on the day before election day. Adam K says, intentionally infecting senior centers with coronavirus. Uh, do you want me to do all of them? or a couple, yeah, let, Let's left? save some more. For okay, later. two more. Mike A says, naked voting. And Joshua J says, I conjured up a tulpa of Putin, cloned him a million times, and sent them to all work for the CIA. Isn't voting naked, isn't that more fiddling in the election than meddling in the election? Alex, uh, so what's on the Patreon podcast? Have we decided what the interview is going to be for this week? I still haven't figured it out. I will figure it out tomorrow when we're doing the Patreon. I'll, I'll get something figured out. You know out. what we do have? We did a whole bunch of interviews in the late 90s, early 2000s with the MST, the uh, movement for... Landless Workers Movement? Yes, exactly. Landless Workers Movement in uh, Brazil. And because you posted the story that I gave, that I uh, asked you to share, the story about how Jair Bolsonaro has now given apparently satellite imagery of the last uncontacted people in the Amazon. He's given those maps to evangelical missionaries to go out and convert them. Maybe that would be a good time to uh, share Yeah, do a big stuff. MST uh, early, late 90s, early 2000s playlist. Yeah. Also, I'll be telling you that it's time we all said no, not to drugs. Good Lord, no. Say yes to drugs. But it's time we all learned how to say no to capitalism. And it's a lot harder than you think. Capitalism can be a hedonistic pleasure that gives you a rush so high it can be addictive. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up during the Moment of Truth, contributor Jeff Dorchin uh, this week defends the obvious. We'll also have the question from Hellwinner and who's on next week's shows. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask were written while I was high. This is Hell. My guess is you already have half on the line. Gently, gently, hunters. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Disclaimer. An unholy slew of cultural references will follow. The thought of Al Pacino as an Ashkenazi Jewish accented Holocaust survivor made my sister not want to watch the new Amazon Prime show Hunters about Nazi hunters in the late 70s. Produced by Jordan Peele. She loves Peele, but didn't like Pacino as Hoffa in The Irishman. And also, in a nod to identity politics, she wondered why they didn't get a real Jew to play Nazi-hunting millionaire Meyer Offerman. There's a lot about the show that doesn't work, and a lot that does. Pacino's accent is not horrible. Saul Rubinek's ebbs and flows. Carol Kane's is perfect in a way I don't understand why Rubinek's isn't. Josh Mustel, son of Zero, not Zorro, 
who played King Herod in the film of Jesus Christ Superstar, Prove to me that you're no fool, walk across my swimming pool, is perfect as Carol and Saul's rabbi, although the writing doesn't rise to the level of the performances. German actress Barbara Sokova, who played Rosa Luxemburg in Margareta von Trotta's not-great biographical film of the Jewish anarchist, is featured in an episode as a possibly wrongly executed possible Nazi. Why this show? Why now? Because Nazis are coming out of the woodwork all over the world. Acting like Nazi is a valid lifestyle choice. And somehow, whether or not it's all right to punch them has been a persistent moral question. And that's the big moral question of the show. Is it all right to kill Nazis three decades after they committed their Naziness? Or does, as Nietzsche had it, the abyss gaze back into you? Do you turn into a monster if you hunt monsters and kill them? Another current show, The October Faction, tackles this question and answers that, yes, monsters are people too, and going around killing them is immoral. At least, it is in a world where monsters are people too. But those are vampires, warlocks, and such, not Nazis. In Hunters, the Nazis are irredeemable monsters, mustache-twirling monsters, obvious in their evil, evil in their declared ambitions. There's even an idealized Proud Boy-style monster. It's a relevant show. It's not anywhere as good as HBO's Watchmen, though. I'm not even sure Hunters is good at all. I think the question of whether it's good or bad is left ambiguous, like the question of whether killing Nazis makes you as bad as a Nazi. There's some cleverness to all the ambiguity, but not much. I'll tell you a few things I don't like about the show. I think it's pretty ignorant about Jewish culture. There's some beloved chicken soup in the story made by someone's beloved safta, although why they use the Hebrew word for grandmother rather than the Yiddish is never explained. The characters aren't Israeli, but whatever. Anyhow, beloved safta's beloved chicken soup is a character in itself, a bygone, mourned, treasured friend of blessed memory. But the soup looked like crap to me. I wouldn't eat it. The broth was too clear. It had no golden hue, not even slightly. It looked like chicken, parsley, and pimento in spring water. I resent that chicken soup being cast as a real Jewish chicken soup. That's a Goyesha food stylist whitewashed image of chicken soup. Another thing I hate is that all the characters call every monstrous person a golem. Golem has a very specific meaning. A golem is a protector who gets out of control. Tony Soprano if he maybe does you a favor and you in return owe him a favor and the plot spins off the rails for your character, that's a golem. A Nazi doctor is not a golem. Also, like I said, Josh Mastel, son of Zero, is very good in the show, but he tells a story that's supposed to be like an Agadah or a fable, and it goes nowhere. And yes, many Agadot go nowhere, it's true, but as a writer... You have your choice of good ones, or you could at least choose to have your characters tell their stories well. We get the point, but it isn't delivered effectively, and it's clearly the writer's fault. The actors are acting on all cylinders. This is a flaw throughout the show. Characters attempt puns or quips or wise saying, and they're just not wise or quippy enough. Back to the point of the so-called moral question. Why has it been so unendurably durable in the past three years, this question of how to react to Nazis? It's tempting to answer, how should I know? I've wanted to crush Donald Dump's skull by slowly, one by one, stacking cast iron dunce caps on it ever since he took office. 
but we must leave aside the visceral, teeth-gnashing impulse to stab and stab and stab the daily realization that Donald Dump is president, which strikes me every day anew with the blunt force of anaphylactic shock, makes me gnashy and stabby in my jaw and fists, but that's my emotions talking, not my reason. Still, my reason doesn't tell me that I need to spend any time weighing the moral considerations of punching Nazis, or killing them, or torturing the deaf, or stabbing a corpulent racist, or crushing his cranium with iron hats. Even though it officially ended 75 years ago, the Nazi project to exterminate people is still offensive to me. Go figure. I guess I'm just a tender snowflake. Maybe the show's point is that yes, you should really kill Nazis at every opportunity, but just be aware that it will turn you into a monster. It's morally right to make that choice, but, you know, that's what happens. There's no true hero that doesn't become an anti-hero by the very nature of true heroism. You'll notice I don't criticize the show's lack of subtlety. The show's been panned mainly for that lack. I find it an objection that's grown tiresome. There's a line from an FBI unit chief in the show advising an agent to lie to get a search warrant. You get comfortable with being uncomfortable with your conscience. It's a good line, especially coming from a law enforcement officer, as a statement about the questionable morality of moral flexibility. An article in The Atlantic complains, of course, about the show's lack of subtlety. There's no subtlety to be found here. No contemporary insight into the alienation, disempowerment, and fear of the other that might compel weak people to embrace such banal veneration of power. I like that the writer tries to evoke Hannah Arendt a little bit there and fails. Too subtle, writer! And as you read that Atlantic article, you skip over a link between paragraphs that promises to tell you that Jojo Rabbit is a fraught tonal experiment. I don't need to read anything in the Atlantic about Jojo Rabbit. It's not a tonal experiment. It's a perfect sardonic satire. Ooh, it's an experiment. It's so weird. Shut up. Read Evelyn Waugh or Muriel Spark, doofus. Get a clue. It's like when Paul McCartney listened to the Beach Boys and discovered via Brian Wilson that a bass line doesn't always need to go to the root note of the chord. Yeah, maybe you could have listened to, say, Mozart and found that out. Anyway, any show that plays the Werner von Braun song by Tom Lehrer under the beginning of a scene has at least a hint of greatness, even if it's someone else's greatness. And yes, it's played under a scene with Werner von Braun in it. How's that for lack of subtlety? You know what's not subtle? Beowulf. It's about a hero who goes after a monster. And you know, it's medieval. The Middle Ages aren't famous as a time of morally complex thought. At least... It's not emphasized in their brochures. And yet, the titular hero of Beowulf is implicated in sin. It's clear he makes a sacrifice, risking his soul by using a sinful weapon to defeat his final enemy. It's the same point in Hunters. Go ahead and kill the monster, but be aware that, by doing so, you sacrifice your innocence. What's all the fetishizing of subtlety, anyway? I think it's related to the anti-Bernie reaction in the Democratic Party. Many are the tweets by genteel, bougie moderates declaring unsubtly that they're put off by the yelling of the Jew, this unstylish suits and hair, and his endless unvarnished harping on the evils of evil. Can't he couch his rhetoric in less provocative policy discussions that will subtly, softly, gradually guide us in the fullness of time to something maybe in the neighborhood of, or perhaps a short trip across town from justice? Sure, we all want justice, but 
not noisy Jewy justice in my backyard. I'm not sure, but I have an instinct that subtlety is wasted on the greedy, the selfish, the uber-wealthy, the tribally racist, the nationalistically fascistic, and the cavalier destroyers of the planet. And subtlety is definitely wasted on Nazis. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Now that I'm not completely exhausted from doing four straight hours of radio without any interruption whatsoever, I can actually focus and pay attention and listen to your moments of truth, and they <laughs> have been fantastic. They've really been great. And I'm, I, They're better because you pay attention. <laughs> that's that's got to be it. All right, Jeffy. All right. Oh, I had a question for you. Now I can't. Oh, is it a drink and think or a think and drink? It's a drink and think. We got an email from a listener who said, look, you don't think and then drink. You drink and then think. <laughs> they were correct. I was wrong this whole time. Totally drink correct. Yeah. I can't think until I drink in the morning. Wait, how is the uh, axe throwing bar going? Oh, it's it's going. It's a going concern. It's a going concern. People are throwing axes. So, uh, is it true? Is it true that your next renovation is on a mace theme bar, or some other uh, medieval weapon? You know, I, I'm not allowed to say, but uh, we're waiting to get uh, council, city council clearance on throwing maces. No, we can't even. You know what? We can't even throw ninja stars in there. Uh. I'm looking forward to a halal halberd oriented show. <laughs> All right, Jeffy, until next week. Okay, I'll do what? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show has been Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is how are you meddling in the U.S. elections? How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? The winner gets a this is hell trucker cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You still have a few more seconds to send in an answer. Send it to facebook.com slash thisishellradio or at thisishellradio or chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. Alex, do you have anymore you have the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell oh yeah andrea j says dank memes of course that's a good one sebastian m says voting bernie and deflating the tires of the handy van that comes by the senior citizens home. <laughs> that's so mean bradley r says i've invited the super delegates under false pretenses to a fundraising banquet for bernie sanders catered by hannibal lecter <laughs> kevin p says lol <laughs> <laughs> good for you, Kevin. That's good. Uh, Rayo says, yeah, I ask myself that question every leap year, but I vote anyhow. Mm. Aaron B says, eating a bucket full of beans and crop dusting my polling place. That's disgusting. Uh, Eric T says, spitting in their coffee. Thomas H says, I'm not going to do what we pay the CIA to do. <laughs> Very good. Uh, a couple more. How are you meddling in the U.S. elections? Mitchell C. says, with my stupid dog. And finally, via Twitter, Pants, Pants, Pants wrote, I'm planning to enter the healthy white blood cells of potential voters, turning them into factories for my own replication, eventually creating enough of my descendants to exit said voter through a mucous membrane and repeat the process in another voter. Damn. <laughs> That's grim. Anything else? That's all of them. All right. So the answers I like the most this week were, I like John saying, praying to a, an atheist socialist god. Brendan reminding campaign managers that they need to change their password. Just click here. Alan saying just fucking around to see what happens was 
that's that's really spectacular. But there are ones that are a little bit more thought out, even though that is really spectacular. Scott, after being saying after being called a Russian bot for the last four years, I've decided to embrace the moniker and am abandoning my human organ organs piece by piece in exchange for refurbished Soviet computer parts. I really liked Pete's by voting for Sanders. And Jeremy saying the same way Russia did, Facebook posts. Apparently, that now qualifies as election meddling. Billionaires buying up all the ad space on TV halfway through the contest? No. But posting to Facebook? Yes. So, Alex, do you like Jeremy's or do you like Alan's? Which one of those two do you like? Uh, I'm going with Alan on this one. All right. So, Alan, you get a This Is Hell trucker cap for answering the question, how are you meddling in the U.S. elections by saying... Just fucking around to see what happens. You've won a This Is Hell trucker cap, and for all of those who did not win the This Is Hell trucker cap, you can get one right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, who's on the show next week, starting with Monday's live streaming show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. After we talked to Shuja Hyder, the people spoke. They want more hiders on the show. Uh, so on Monday, we're talking with Assad Hyder, his brother, uh, who's back on the show to talk about his excellent, excellent, excellent viewpoint mag piece on depoliticization. But he's going to just really be, he's just here to talk dirt about Shuja, right? Uh, we should use the quest from hell material. <laughs> exactly. Uh, how about Tuesday's show? Uh, Rob Larson, also a past guest, will be back on to talk about his book, Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. And then... Uh, get ready for Wednesday, because this is going to be a weird one. Uh, Elena Levin will be on to talk about her book, Her Stories, Daytime Soap Opera and U.S. Television History. I'm I really excited for I this. I can't wait for that. Uh, it reminds me of the uh, American Cookbook interview that we did last year that was really, really amazing. That cultural look at how cookbooks have changed. Yeah, still thinking about that white sauce. Yeah, it's so gross. Anything for Thursday yet? Uh, not yet, but... Uh, probably going to be about climate change. But we'll have another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, uh, and we'll figure out, and when we announce, find out who the guest is going to be, we'll announce it online. Uh, thanks to this week's guest in order of appearance, computer engineer Paul Cockshot, author of How the World Works, the story of human labor from prehistory to the modern day. Writer-at-large roving correspondent for the outline, Shuja Haider, who posted the article following last week's Democratic presidential candidate debate, the world's biggest threat to democracy is the Democratic Party. Thanks to historian Toure F. Reed, author of Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. Toure teaches 20th century U.S. and Afro-American history at Illinois State University. And thanks to today's guest, Nandini Chami, who is co-author with Anita Gurumurti and of the uh, Roar magazine article, Data Governance and the New Frontiers of Resistance. Both of them are from IT for Change, which you can find at itforchange.net and follow on Twitter at IT for Change. This week's Hangover Cure was... Apple cider vinegar diluted with six to eight ounces of water. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon. I hope to see you all at This Is Hell office hours tomorrow night, Friday, beginning at 7 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. And then back here at thisishell.com Monday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. But don't forget to subscribe to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell to get a bonus show every week, live Friday mornings at 10 a.m. with a new monologue from me and a classic archived our classic interview from our archives of 23 years of doing the show i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host chuck mertz producing alex jerry there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show and that's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words everybody's stupid
My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.